Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 19. As I've mentioned before, I went to Togo, West Africa in 1998, and it was one of those experiences that it just changes your worldview. It changes your life. And as Sophie is over in China now, I'm sure in many ways the same will be true of, of her and this experience for her. You know, you experience a sort of culture shock, of course, because things are so radically different on the other side of the world. Uh, but there are a few stories in particular that stick out in my mind from my trip to, to Togo. Um, and I rem- we, we mainly traveled around from village to village trying to engage people with the gospel and to talk with them about Jesus. Uh, so it's kind of like cold call evangelism, just going village to vi- village and house to house. People were interested to hear about what we had to say. Uh, I remember going to villages and you would see uh, little handmade clay idols on the, the ground or on the, the doorposts. You would see uh, chicken remains or other animal rem- remains on the doorposts sometimes as, as they had sacrificed in order to appease some sort of, of God. The one story that sticks out in particular is that we traveled to one village and uh, we were able to share the gospel with several people and we were thrilled to to hear that several had accepted the gospel. They seemed to have received the gospel, to accepted Jesus and what we and some others on the team had uh, proclaimed to them. Well, a few days later we got word uh, or we went back to check on these these new what we thought were these new believers and to see how they were doing and we found out that as we were actually arriving, those ones who we thought had received the gospel were sacrificing animals to appease uh, some, some sort of God that they believed in. And, of course, we were shocked by that. And the, the Christians with us were shocked by that. Evidently, somewhere in the communication process, it had not been communicated that it is finished. That Jesus' sacrifice once and for all, has made atonement for sin, and there was no need for sacrifice. You know, we won't do something like that, right? We won't continue making sacrifices in order to appease the wrath of God or in order to be accepted by God. And yet, there are times that we begin or could begin to think that there is some other work needed on our part. Or there is some other sacrifice that we must make in order to make atonement for our sins. And our theme this morning teaches us the exact opposite. Because it is finished, there is no work I must do, and there is no sacrifice I must make to be accepted by God. Because Jesus accomplished salvation by His life and death, There is no work you must do to earn God's favor, and there is no sacrifice you must make to atone for your sin. So follow along with me as I read from our passage, and I'm going to read a little bit more than just the few verses we're focusing on. Let's read John chapter 19, verses 17 to 30. John 19, verses 17 to 30. The soldiers took charge of Jesus, and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let us pray together. Lord, would you please move in our hearts, move in our minds, Would you please use your word to pierce our hearts and use the gospel to heal our hearts. We pray that you would use this time to draw us to you in faith. We would recognize the work of Christ for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because it is finished, there is no work I must do and no sacrifice I must make to be accepted by God. For our time this morning, we'll focus on verses 28 to 30, and particularly those words of Jesus, three in the English and one in the Greek, it is finished. You'll notice that this word occurs twice in these few verses, once from the pen of John, who is interpreting what is going on, and then on the lips of Jesus. John says, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. Perhaps John is referring to to Psalm 22. As we saw last week, the gospel authors point back to Psalm 22 quite often as referring to Jesus. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, the psalmist says. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Or perhaps Psalm 69, verse 21 For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. John sees this as a moment when Jesus recognizes it is over. It's finished. It is completed. So the guards took a sponge and a branch and extended it out to Jesus' mouth. It's almost as if Jesus, who no doubt, I mean, consider what must have been going on for him emotionally and physically. Completely drained of all energy emotionally or mentally or otherwise, physically weak and dehydrated. It's as if he needs to say one more very important thing. And here's what he says. It is finished. 
Then he bows his head and gives up his spirit. No one took Jesus' life from him. He and he alone decided when and how it would happen. No one, he says, takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my sheep. And I lay it down of my own accord. But you might wonder, what is it that is finished? We haven't been walking through the book of John together, and so we haven't been able to take the time to to walk through and see what Jesus had come to do. So it may be a little more difficult for us to see this, just coming to this one text. But to find out what it is that is finished, we have to go back through the book to find out what he's referring to. So that's the first question that we'll answer this morning, is what is it that has been finished? The second is, how did he finish it? And the third is, what does that mean for us? What implications does that have for us? So what is it that has been finished? When Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus fulfilled the mission the Father had given him. So when Jesus says, it is finished, he's saying that he has accomplished all the work that his heavenly Father had given him. All the work that his Father had given him to do, he had completed his mission. Years ago, Rick Warren wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. What he was doing was tapping in on this hunger that all humans have to figure out, why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my mission in life? And what... Think about this. What a wonderful thing it would be to come to the end of your life and know you had fulfilled your mission. Know that you had accomplished your mission. You would come to the end of your life and say, that's it. I've done it. I've completed it. I've fulfilled the mission that God has given me from first to last. And you know, in my experience with people who are dying and have died, I have never heard that once. Other than Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, I don't think I've ever heard that. Jesus says, it is finished. And Paul, astounding as it is, says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But even, you see, Paul's words are bound up in the story of what Jesus had accomplished for him. And like Paul, our purpose in life is bound up in the purpose and mission of Christ. So what was his mission? Why did he come? Well, in John 4, Jesus' disciples urge him to eat. Do you remember this? They're urging him to eat. This is after he met with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so they thought he had a secret stash of food, you know, somewhere hidden in his clothes. But he clarifies himself and he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus was saying, I have work to do and I'll eat when I'm dead. He was consumed with accomplishing the work the Father had given him. He was consumed with this, fulfilling his mission. In John six thirty-five and following, listen to what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me. So pay attention. He's explaining his purpose and the will of the one who sent him. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A couple more verses from John. Listen to John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then in John 17, we read these amazing words. And Jesus is praying to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In our text, Jesus says, it is finished. So this is what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to make your life happy and easy and comfortable. He didn't come to fulfill your American dream. I have to wonder how much we've unknowingly been affected by the American dream rather than the the divine mission. Rather than the mission that Jesus came to accomplish for us. I heard recently an interview on NPR with a theology professor at Duke. She spent a year traveling around the world, really, examining the prosperity gospel, and how it has affected the church. And it was amazing to just listen for a few moments how much this idea of prosperity and how the gospel is supposed to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise has affected almost every aspect of church life in America. And perhaps it has affected the way we think about why Jesus came. He came to accomplish the mission of the Father. That all of those He had given to Him, none should be lost. That He would give eternal life to all who believe in Him. But that leads us to our next question. Well, how did He accomplish this? How did He finish this mission that had been given to Him by the Father? Two ways. First, Jesus fulfilled the mission by His perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus fulfilled the mission by his perfect obedience to the Father. There was a test for Adam in the garden. Think about what that test must have been like for Adam. In a land of perfect abundance. In the presence of God. No toil, no sweat from your work. Only joy and fulfillment in the work that you were doing. He had everything he needed to succeed. Everything. Talk about prosperity. He had it all. And yet, he failed. He failed 
to love God with all of his heart. He failed to trust God. He failed to obey the commands of the Lord. Even though he had all the circumstances that would have provided for his success. And we often think that our failures are simply the consequences of our circumstances. If we had everything just right, if the thermostat was set at just the right level, if the cash flow was just right for my family and me, if time moved at the pace that was perfectly fitted for what I needed, if we could get all this, then we could overcome our sins and our faults. Not true. And Adam is exhibit A. We would have failed just like him, even had all the circumstances been exactly right. Exhibit B of failure is Israel. They had it tougher than Adam, no doubt. But God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out with great wonders and signs. Can you imagine actually seeing the miracles that took place in rescuing Israel from Egypt? Great Shock and awe, they walked through the Red Sea with the water-like walls on either side of them. They saw the glory of God in their midst. They stood on the other side of the Red Sea and watched their enemies washing up on shore, defeated. They had God's chosen prophet Moses and God himself to lead them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God provided food for them. Birds from the sky and manna fell from heaven, water from the rock. But like Adam, Israel too failed. They failed to obey the Heavenly Father. They failed to love Him with all of their hearts. But where Adam and Israel and all humanity have failed, Jesus passed the test. You remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He didn't have a full stomach like Adam did. He didn't have the manna like the Israelites did. God had given them manna that they might know that man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Jesus demonstrates in the temptation that he lives by the word of God. And he lives for the glory of God. And he lives to obey the Father even in the worst and most trying and most difficult of circumstances. See, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is not primarily about how we can overcome sin and temptation by following Jesus' example. It's about Jesus' victory over Satan and the temptation to go about his mission by another route, by bypassing suffering and death. It's about the victorious Christ who lives by the word of God for the glory of God. He lives to please the Father. And really, this is paradigm a paradigm for the rest of his life as well. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus obeyed perfectly the commands of the Father. This is called the active obedience of Christ. We often focus on Christ and his death for us, and we ought to place a high value on that. But we ought not forget that before Jesus died for us, he lived for us. In fact, his death means nothing unless he first lived in perfect obedience to the Father. So this is what we mean when we say at the Lord's Supper that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. How did Jesus finish his mission? By living in perfect obedience to the Father. But second, Jesus fulfilled the mission by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. 
So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, I am the perfect sacrifice for sin. Once and for all, I have offered up my life. Never again will there be any need for sacrifice. So day after day in the Old Testament, the priests would make sacrifices before the Lord. Day after day and year after year, they would slit the throats of animals, sprinkle the blood, and the smoke would rise up to the Lord. And day after day and year after year, they would be reminded of the guilt that they had for their sins. But the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sins. They were just biding their time. It's it's kind of like a credit card bill that you never quite pay off. Now, thankfully, I don't have a credit card now, but I have in the past. And the statement comes in and you have, say, a a debt of $300, but you only have to make a $50 minimum payment. And so you make that minimum payment. And you're good for the next month. But the next month your debt is larger and your minimum payment is larger. And if you keep making the minimum payment, you're not making any progress. You're not gaining any ground. And in a similar way, the saints of the Old Testament were simply biding their time with all of these sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats could never atone for the sins of humans. They were biding their time until one would come who could truly make things right. And when Christ came... He looked back at all those sacrifices which pointed to him and he stretched out his arms on the altar of the cross and said, it is finished. This is called the passive obedience of Christ. His act of obedience is his life of obedience to the Father, a thank offering of righteousness to the Lord. And his passive obedience refers to his suffering under the wrath of God for sinners, a guilt offering making payment for sinners. And in his life and in his death, it is finished. He has completed the mission that God had given him. Now, this, of course, is not to deny the resurrection and the ascension, nor Jesus' intercession for us, nor his coming back to fulfill all that had been accomplished. But the decisive battle had been won. Since Jesus had accomplished God's mission in his life and death, the rest was all a foregone conclusion. But what does that mean for us? What are the implications for us? What does it is finished have to do with us? This is the so what question. So what does it mean for us? And it's to that question we turn now. What does this mean for us? And I have three implications here. Number one, since Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, our acceptance with God will come only through our union with Christ. Our acceptance with God will only come through our union with Christ. Jesus has merited the full favor of God. So how do we get in on that? And the scripture teaches us that we are united to Jesus by faith. So as we turn from our sins and trust in Christ who lived for us and who died for us, who came to save us by his work, we are united to Jesus and all the blessings that he has earned flow to us through him. A mysterious thing happened on the cross for those who believe. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us who believe. It is credited to our account and our sinfulness was placed upon Christ. It was imputed to Christ on the cross. Our sins were counted towards him. 
He took our shame and our sin, and He gives us the blessings of His righteousness and the favor of God. It is only by Christ and His righteousness you will ever be accepted by God. So here's an illustration I like to use from time to time that was used by D. James Kennedy and Donald Gray Barnhouse before him. And it's not going to be like this. It's just an illustration to help us examine where is it, where are we placing our faith? So suppose you died and went to heaven and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into the kingdom? And you might, your mind might go in several different places. You might say, because I did my best to follow your law and live a life pleasing to you. I did my best. I did all I could do. Or because I was truly sorry over my sin for what I had done. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry for all of that. Because I tried to be kind to others. Because I did my best to follow the Ten Commandments. The moral law that you have given us. I did my best. Because I prayed regularly and read my Bible daily and attended church weekly. But whatever the reasons you give, if you begin with the words, because I, you're probably missing something very important. Because rather, you ought to begin because Jesus. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for my sake. Because Jesus lived the life I should have lived. Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Because Jesus rose again for my justification. Because Jesus cried, it is finished for me. So that's our first implication. We will only be accepted and favored by God through faith in the work of Christ. And second, for the one in Christ. For the, so this is the one who has connected himself to Christ through faith. For the one who is in Christ. There is now no work which must be done to earn God's favor. There is no work which must be done to earn God's favor. Now, isn't that our tendency, though, to try and earn God's favor? Even after we have admitted that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, even after we have admitted that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, we still have this tendency to drift back into our old, old ways of trying to merit God's love, to merit His favor. And maybe it's just something, too, about the American way. We want to contribute something to God's love for us. We want to be able to say, I did it. I did something to merit this. Even We're, we're like little kids who learned to ride their bikes, even though Dad was pushing us the whole way. <laughs> we learned to tie our shoes, and we want to say, I did it. I did something, and now God will love me because of this. Think about it. Don't you sometimes tend to base your standing with God on how you're performing religiously? So someone asks, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing? And if you haven't been reading your Bible, and if you haven't been spending much time in prayer, you feel pretty happy. You feel pretty good about yourself. God must be pleased with you. God must just really be, His smile is shining upon you because you have been doing well spiritually. But if you haven't been, then you have this sinking feeling in your heart that your standing with God is on shaky ground. That He could turn on you at any moment. 
Now, of course, I'm not saying don't read your Bible and pray. Do that. Absolutely do that. Do them in gratitude for the acceptance you have with God through Christ. But do not do them as a means of trying to merit God's favor. Because here's the problem with that thinking. When we think we must do something to earn God's favor, or when we think we're earning God's favor by our religious performance, we do two things. First, we overestimate our own righteousness and our own ability to keep God's law. This is what the Israelites did when Moses read the law to them. And they said, all this we will do. And when we begin to feel like we have or can keep God's law perfectly, we are overestimating ourselves. But the second thing we do when we try to merit God's favor like this, we are belittling the righteousness of Christ. As though it's not enough. Or as if, It's something that we could attain. We could do it too if we just tried hard enough. When Christ says it is finished, He means it. He accomplished our salvation by His perfect righteousness for us. What we need is not our own righteousness, but an alien righteousness from outside of ourselves, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, which is given to us by grace alone. Not by our earning it, not by anything we have done or worked, but simply by His grace received through faith. So let us not overestimate our own ability, our own righteousness. And let us not think little of the righteousness of Christ by thinking there's something left for us to do. But finally, consider this third and last implication, which flows from Jesus' words, It is finished. For the one who is in Christ, there is no sacrifice which must be made to atone for sin. The sacrifice Jesus made, he made once for all for sin. And nothing needs to be added to that sacrifice. To try and make up for our sin somehow is to call into question the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us. So along these lines, I remember a little village that we visited when I was on a mission team in the Philippines, I sound like a world traveler. I'm not. I've just been to a few places. It was a small, poor village, but just outside of the village, just on the outskirts of this small, poor village were these large concrete steps going up the side of this hill. I counted the steps, but I can't remember how many there were. A hundred, maybe. Maybe more. But as I remember it, every few steps there were these carvings of some sort, perhaps of different saints. And it was explained to us that people would pray as they ascended up these steps. They would kneel down and pray, asking for forgiveness, trying to earn God's favor somehow by this difficult task. And when they finally arrived at the top, they would see a shrine to Mary, the mother of Jesus, with the baby in her arms. And they would light candles to her and pray, sometimes weeping in hopes of receiving forgiveness or perhaps the answer to some other prayer. And the candles were all over the place. The wax was melted down, the soot all over the shrine. And it occurs to me, they didn't know. They didn't know that it's finished. They didn't know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to save them from all of their sins. They don't know that it's finished. They don't know that Jesus finished it 
And there are people around you who do not know it is finished, who are working in some way to try to merit the favor of God, in some way to try to earn God's love. There is no more work that can be done. There is no more sacrifice to be made, for Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. We don't need to climb up to God, for He has come down to us in Christ. He came down to be lifted up for our sake. By his life and by his death, it is now finished. So rest in his work for you. Let's pray together. Father, would you uh, please move us to respond to your word? Whether it be by repentance and faith, by laying down some sort of merit that we think we're gaining by our religious performance. Help us to respond by resting in Christ and His work. Bring to our minds people that we know who don't know it's finished. Who don't know and trust in Christ and His work for us. Work in our hearts that we would respond now in this time of singing, but also later today and throughout this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.